Dear Father in heaven, we are very grateful to be here and to be learning how we can work with you in growing crops and, and just learning about how amazing you are to provide for us in, in the way of um, cooperating with our efforts and causing the plants to grow and, and giving us a wonderful harvest that brings joy to our hearts. Thank you, Father, for the pleasure that you give us. And we pray that as we spend this time together in this class, that um, it will be beneficial. I pray that you will help me to communicate effectively um, and thank you for being with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is a class on growing tomatoes. It's only a one-hour class. There's um, probably, we could be here for several days to go through all the intricacies of growing tomatoes. I'm not an expert in growing tomatoes. I've been growing them for commercially for six years. What I'm sharing with you today uh, is from my experience. I haven't gone and researched all the textbooks and pulled out all this data and information to try to share with you and impress you with the knowledge that I have. I'm only sharing with you what I have experienced myself. I, I, I wish Arthur was up here teaching because he has a much greater knowledge um, growing, especially in greenhouses. But um, they asked me to do the class, so I will share with you what God has taught me. And first of all, I want to say that um, I'm not a big reader, so I don't go and do a lot of research. I learn much better from going and talking to people, observation, seeing what they're doing, and uh, learning from them. And so I read when I'm stuck <laughs> and I pray and I find that God is the best instructor. He's promised in Isaiah 28 that he will give us wisdom and wisdom comes from experience and then using that experience and knowledge and applying it in a, in a wise way. So sometimes we make mistakes and we have failures and that's part of learning wisdom. So if you think, well, I've learned all this information then you go and you try and it doesn't work. Well, God is still in the process of teaching you. So tomatoes are a fun crop to grow. They're one of my favorites. And we grow quite a, quite a lot for a small farm. Uh, we grow many varieties. And um, <clears throat> we're situated in California in the foothills, 2300 foot elevation facing towards uh, South Tahoe. And uh, we grow on terraces where we um, don't have the ideal soil, but um, God has blessed and we've had amazing results. And I've may had some not so good results some years as well, but it's all part of the learning process and you have a whole nother year to wait to implement the changes that you know you need to make. I'm sorry, I will, I, the cord here is very short. So if I move this way, I'm blocking someone else, but I will, Yes. Uh, okay, sorry, I did not see the mic. We will use, whoops, we'll use that. Maybe that'll help. I don't have a, a loud voice. There we go. So growing tomatoes. Please save your questions until uh, the end of the presentation. We've been asked that because the quality of recording is, is hindered uh, for audio verse. And so I'll try to save some time, but I've got a lot to go through. And um, so... There is, is there going to be a round table for, for a discussion that includes this class? I'm not sure if there is, but um, I will stay afterwards if you have questions, if we end and, and our time is up. So I always like to research Spirit of Prophecy to try and see if there's any information because I believe our best source to learn from is the inspired source. And uh, I found this and it's not necessarily inspired as far as what is told about how to grow, but it was interesting to me that in the um, fourth volume of the biography on Ellen White that it says this, the garden is the exercise ground for my workers. She's talking about her secretaries, the literary assistants that she had, and she says early and late the girls are at work in the garden when they are off duty. It is better for them and more satisfactory than any exercise they can have. And then this other statement, same volume, page 27, uh, sorry, 271. I could not persuade Marion to ride, could not get her free from her writings, but now she has her interest awakened, and I have no fears but that she will get out of her chair and work in the garden. This garden of flowers is a great blessing to my girls, and they are working with the tomato raising, planting and caring for the tomatoes. And so if you read much about uh, her 
uh, gardening experiences and farming experiences, you will find that she had extensive crops. I mean, not just a little few raised beds, but extensive crops. And she was very active herself and going out early in the morning and working the garden. And she encouraged her workers and she encouraged all of us, if you read her counsel, to get out and uh, get involved in the garden. So where do we start? When we're growing tomatoes, we have to start with seed. And we could talk quite a bit about seed. I will say this about seed. There's good seed and not so good seed. And um, tomato seed is a very hardy seed. So, for example, when I was going to school, and I was in high school, the school got some sludge from the sewer ponds uh, for the city. They, these big, huge ponds and all the sludge goes to the bottom and it sits there for I don't know how long, quite a few years, and then they dredge it and bring it up and dry it and it's completely you know, broken down and decomposed and then they give it away for free. People would come and get truckloads and take it and use it in their gardens and so forth. So it was uh, used in the school gardens and all of a sudden, what, grow, what grew out of it? Tomatoes. Nothing else, no weeds, nothing, no other plant, just tomatoes. And it's really struck me the hardiness of tomato seeds. Now, most seeds are viable. Um, when you buy a packet of seeds, it has the percentage of germination rate. They've tested it and they might take 100 seeds and 87 of them germinate. And so they'll put 87% germination rate on the, on the packet. And um, so usually for two years on most seeds, that is true, but as you get, as a seed gets older, that percentage drops and, and becomes less and less. In fact, it drops fairly quickly on some seed. But with tomatoes, typically for five years, it'll stay pretty true to that percentage rate because it's a very hardy seed. So what I will mention about getting your source of seed for tomatoes is that, or for any of your, uh, even for home gardening, if you're just a home gardener, if you go to a good catalog like Johnny's or one of these commercial um, catalogs, rather than going to a garden store where they have these little packets and that's all they have, the quality of seed is much better when they sell it for commercial purposes than for the uh, home use. And it's uh, apparently when they collect the seed and they weigh it, um, the heavier seed is the better quality seed and so that is sold for commercial use and, and the lighter seed is sold for home gardens and so you don't get the best quality seed um, typically for when you buy it in those little packets at the garden store. So when you're looking for seed, look in a good quality uh, catalogue and we buy a lot of our seed from Johnny's. We found them to be pretty good but not always. We sometimes uh, find their seed is, is, is faulty. Um, but they will refund you if it is, but sometimes you've planted it and then it doesn't come up and you lose time. Um, <clears throat> there are varieties that you can choose that are, have qualities such as disease resistance, cracking resistance. There are hundreds of varieties of tomatoes. I mean, there's just, there's an amazing selection out there. And so I'm not going to talk um, during this time about the different varieties. I will talk about two different kinds or two different groups of tomatoes, um, but you can find all different qualities. And if you know there's a certain disease that you know is common in your area, if you're in the um, Midwest or the Eastern States where there's a lot of rain during the summer seasons, you're gonna have blight and so forth. So you might wanna be looking for resistant varieties that will help you with those uh, issues. So there's two types of tomato plants, determinate and sometimes called a bush, a bush tomato, and um, then there's the indeterminate, and the indeterminate, well let's talk first about the determinate. Uh, why would you choose a determinate over a indeterminate type of um, tomato? The, the uh, determinates are a short season um, tomato, uh, they can be grown in containers. They don't grow tall. They, they're usually short. Um, some of them that we've grown have gone about shoulder height, but typically they're about three feet or, or, or even sometimes a little less than three feet tall. Um, if you are growing commercially and you want to target the early market and you want a lot of um, 
fruit for that early market, then uh, a determinate is a very good variety. You get ones that usually the packet will tell you how many days to, to uh, harvest on it. So you try to get a variety that has the qualities you're looking for and the shortest number of days if you're targeting the early market. And uh, there's minimal work required because you're not uh, having to do much pruning. And in fact, you can get away with doing no pruning with them. You just let them grow as a bush and they will set a lot of fruit all at once. And typically you'll get a really big harvest within about a month or a little bit more than a month and then it's done. And actually we, we um, grow these in our high tunnel for the early market. We can get them started about six weeks earlier than the outdoor ones. And um, so we get the best price before all the outdoor ones come on. And the, what I have discovered, and this has turned out to be a tremendous blessing, growing them in the high tunnel, we, we, we harvest them and we sell them for that early market. And there's basically, we can sell all that we can grow in that, green, in that little, um, well, a 3,000 foot um, high tunnel. And um, then the plants just sit there and I don't pull them out. I'm too busy harvesting other crops and I just leave them there. And then they stay there and there might be a, you know, the odd little bit of fruit that comes off them. But then in the fall, as the temperatures start dropping in September, they start flowering and they set another crop. And then because they're under plastic, then in the fall, I have another harvest, not as big as the, the one in the, um, in the spring. But, uh, or early summer, but it's, um, it's actually really a blessing because then you, you can go back and harvest them when everything outdoors is starting to slow down. And, and um, so there is a benefit to using the, the terminates if you want to target certain seasons. The, um, the determinate, uh, the way it works and grows, the terminal buds set fruit and stop stem growth. So they just somehow they abort the, 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 the growing um, habit of the plant and the plant is self-topping and they say that you can grow them without staking. Um, my experience has been you need to stake them. <laughs> and we're going to talk about methods uh, of staking them that is uh, really effective for these. And you don't need to prune the, the side shoots, just let them grow. You could if you want to, if you want bigger size fruit, you can prune um, but we don't, we just let them grow and you get these big clusters, lots and lots of fruit all at once. So why would you choose an indeterminate tomato? Well, it's to provide a long harvest. The indeterminate will continue growing for a long period of time. In fact, they'll continue growing until the frost comes and kills them. And in a, in a, uh, in a, protected environment inside a greenhouse like uh, what Arthur is doing uh, at the operation that he manages. They keep them going all through the winter and, and they can harvest through there because the indeterminates can go actually for several years if you have the right temperature. Um, so when you're choosing between a determinate and an indeterminate, if you want to grow heirlooms, you're not going to find determinate heirlooms. They're just not there. So you, if you're trying to grow an heirloom, you're going to choose automatically an indeterminate. And um, you will have a higher yield of an indeterminate because it, it's harvesting over an extended period of time. So you, you can be harvesting for our uh, situation, our outdoor crops. We pretty much start by July, um, early July, maybe Occasionally it'll come in uh, late June and we'll harvest all the way through into October and um, they just keep producing. So indeterminates for a long harvest. They'll grow and produce fruit until killed by frost. They can reach heights of 12 feet or more. In fact, I've heard that inside the greenhouse growing systems, they can grow 40 feet. And um, the way they manage that, because you can never reach up there and you'd have to have a pretty tall ladder to reach 40 feet. So they have them hanging on these wire and hooks and string that they keep lowering the plants and they strip the leaves off the lower part of them. And so when the plant gets to a certain height, they strip the leaves off, let some string down and the plant just bends down and keeps growing up and they just keep managing. And so by the end of the season, when they're ready to rip those, those plants out, you'll see the plant there, say at the pillar and the, the, the actual roots in the ground are gonna be way down the other end of the row. 
um, because they're just lying down and they keep lowering and it keeps moving down the row. And um, it's quite interesting to see that system. So indeterminates will bloom, set new fruit and ripen fruit all at the same time throughout the season. And what amazes me is, you know, we, we're still harvesting right into November. They're not typically when the temperatures drop down, they stop setting fruit. But the fruit that's there can take six weeks to, from fruit set to harvest. And so in October, they're still setting fruit and that fruit continues to grow even though the temperature is dropping, they're growing slower. And uh, one year, we actually using a product called MaxiCrop. It's a seaweed extract. And when you spray the, the leaves as a foliar spray, when the temperatures are dropping, you know it's gonna be a little bit of a frost. It actually hardens the plants by maybe three or perhaps four degrees. Uh, it can actually take a light frost and the plant will not die. So we've ha actually extended our season. We've had the plants alive in January outdoors in California where we normally, you know, some years we'll get a hard frost in, in November, but that particular year it didn't come and we just, every time it looked like it was dipping, spray them with some maxi crop and, and they kept going. Didn't get much production off them because it was too cold, but they were still alive in January. So there's a picture, you can see the flowers and you can see this, these are cherry tomatoes. This last year we grew a lot of t cherry tomatoes and uh, they just, just absolutely covered in flowers and uh, we had such an incredible crop. This is a picture of a tomato tree. It's, a, it's an indeterminate uh, one. It's, it's actually a real one. It's not a fake picture. Uh, it was at the Epcot Center of Disney World. At, uh, apparently they sourced the seed from, a, um, from China and this particular indeterminate produced 1150 pounds, 1151 pounds of tomatoes in one calendar year and it was in a protected environment um, and it uh, produced 32,000 individual fruits. Um, so incredible uh, what, what a tomato plant can do. Let's talk about the uh, temperature for germination. So when you start your seeds and you're going to grow your seedlings, um, here's a chart that has the, te op the, the, the temperature ranges and how many days it takes for the seed to germinate. So we're just going to um, zero in on tomatoes here. And tomatoes, um, you can see if you go over to the orange column and the highlighted gray area there is six days at 77 degrees. That's the optimum temperature for, for a short germination. If it's 68 degrees, it's eight days. If it's 59 degrees, uh, it's actually 14 days. And if it's 50 degrees, it's 43 days. So you want to, a lot of people want to get their tomatoes started early and they want to start them. And as soon as it's warm enough and the, the first frost, the danger of the, uh, sorry, the, the last frost, has passed, they want to get them in the ground right away to get them growing. So that means you've got to start them growing uh, your seedlings uh, when it's quite cold. So we'll talk about the methods of uh, getting them started early. So I learned this from Sunazona Family Farms. Uh, they were using germination chambers, basically old refrigerators or freezers, and putting a little tiny space heater in the bottom with a thermostatically controlled, um, you can buy them, you can just plug into them and set the temperature at whatever you want and the probe is inside and as soon as the temperature hits that it turns off and as soon as it drops below it it turns on so it'll keep a constant temperature. So you can seed out your, your trays, put them in there and I, I actually took, I don't have a picture of our one, but I took one of these vertical freezers and I added extra shelves in between because the, the shelves were about a foot apart and you know, your seed trays are only four inches or so. I put an extra layer of shelves in between. So I can actually have, uh, according to the cells, I can have 2000 cells in one freezer germinating. Yeah, so basically to go over that again, you take an old freezer and it's already got some shelving in it and you can add extra shelving to it if you want because your seed trays, your pots that you're using they're usually six packs or they can be, you know, the commercial ones can be 72 or 50 count trays and you put your uh, potting mix in there and you seed it and you w water it. You put it into the germination chamber. It's got a little heater at the bottom, a little space heater. It's got a thermostatically controlled um, 
unit that you plug it into, which a probe goes inside, you shut the door, and it will keep it at that temperature that you set it at. So the optimum temperature for germinating the tomato seed is around 77 degrees. 75 around there is going to be about the same. And you can have that. And at night time, the temperatures drop down, but it will stay right through the night. And even though the seed packet might tell you that it's uh, 7 days or 10 days to germination, you will cut that even down less because it's constant temperature through the night. So we've found that um, tomatoes take a little bit longer than some of the others, but a lot of seed, you've got to be watching them by the second day because definitely by the third day they're breaking through and you want to get them out of there immediately when they break through the soil because if they're left in there without light, as soon as they come out of the soil, they're looking for light and they'll grow spindly and yellow and by the time you pull them out, they'll just fall over and die. Sometimes if, they, if you... If they're only you know that high they might survive but they might be a bit sickly so you, you you check on them I check them three times a day so first thing in the morning I come I look in there okay they haven't come through I'll go back before lunch open the door okay they're starting to break out I'll pull them out and then I'll put them you know on the uh, tables to grow and um, so you've got to keep an eye on them. If you're negligent, you'll lose them. So the advantage of having the shortness of time, you'll lose that. But anyway, this works very effectively. Another way you can do it if you're a home grower is using heating mats. These are readily available. You can set the temperature in your um, uh, cells of uh, seedlings can be there on the uh, heating mat and, and germinate quickly the same way by keeping a constant heat. So you're, um, one of the things that I find most effective for getting strong plants, because when you're growing commercially, you really want to have strong, vigorous, healthy plants that produce a lot. And when you get a seed packet, you've got some seed that's really good and you've got some seed that's, that's maybe not quite mature or, and it's never going to grow up into a strong, highly productive plant. So if you get just a flat tray of uh, potting soil, um, and I don't buy seed raising soil that's really fine. I use just straight, you know, a potting mix that we actually make ourselves from um, coconut core and, and other ingredients that we, we sent it off to the lab, had it analyzed and got all the different uh, nutrients that is ideal for plants and, uh, you know, what the recommendations were. And we mix that up. And then in a tray, if you make little lines with your finger, and then sprinkle the seed in those lines and then cover it up, water it, you'll get this thick row of tomatoes breaking through and, um, and then you can see the really strong ones coming up and you'll see the ones that are a little bit slower and coming up. So when, then you can do what's called pricking out. You just, these tomatoes are really hardy. You can just grab them with your fingers or you can use a little knife or something to just kind of leverage their um, their roots out and you take the real strong ones and then put them into your cells that you want to grow into your seedlings and leave the weaker ones and don't use them um, and then you'll get the maximum crop from doing that. The tomato plant is, uh, has what's called pubescent uh, vines and if you look at the stems on them they're hairy and those hairy stems actually if they come in contact with soil put roots out i don't know if you've if you've experienced that and um, so you can plant your plants deep when you put your transplants in the ground and um, that stem that you've planted under the soil will put out more roots and you'll have a, a stronger root system sooner because you planted it down and then you see the little shoot coming out the side sometimes called a bad habit and you prune them off because you want a vertical vine. So you can start plants when those get up, you know, like this and have a few true leaves on them that are, you know, that are developing. You can actually break those off and put them in soil and they'll grow into plants. But you'd have to first have a plant growing to do that so it would come on later in the season if you're um, wanting to kind of clone that plant, I guess. Um, so when you get your seedlings grown up, um, and you're ready to transplant out, there's, um, well, let me go backwards. I want to first talk a bit, before we plant, let's talk about soil fertility for tomatoes. Um, one of the best things we ever did um, at Weimar Farm was to have soil tests done and then follow the recommendations. We first started out with um, Kinsey Labs, 
and um, Kinsey, you can go to kinseyag.com uh, and they have information there. Um, if you want to go with an Adventist guy that you can get really quick access and consultation from, Whitmar McConnell, he's here at the um, conference. Um, he works with Kinsey, he's one of their consultants, so he can actually give you his form that you fill out when you send your soil um, uh, sample into them and they send it to Perry Labs, get it back and then send the results straight to him and then he calculates all the recommendations and why I go with him is because I can email him or call him and I get an immediate answer. With Kinsey, if you email, you probably won't. Only once did I get a, an immediate uh, response. Um, and if you need to talk to him, it's like two or $300 an hour. I can't remember to consult with him. But um, <clears throat> Whitmar is available and you can email or talk to him if you have questions. He has a table here too. Okay, he has a table in the booth area. So um, this was the best thing we did because, you know, if you're just putting on compost and you're doing all these other methods that are, you know, commonly done, you get some results, but it's really you're working in the dark. You don't know what you've got in your soil. And tomatoes can be heavy feeders on nitrogen, heavy feeders on potassium, and you need to have the right amount there for them to be highly productive. Otherwise, it can really affect your, your final um, production. So on the, on the screen there, you can see a sample of the recommendations that come after Whitmar has done the um, calculations. And you just follow them and, and broadcast that on the ground and work it into the soil and then you're ready to plant. After, uh, in addition to the recommendations that he gives, we always apply the C90, the ocean minerals. You can buy it, it's in a dehydrated form, it looks like a coarse salt. It's um, dehydrated straight from the ocean in uh, southern uh, Baja, California, Mexico. And um, so it's not been, the, the sodium hasn't been isolated like, if you buy sea salt that you use for the table, it might have come from the sea but they've isolated the sodium um, out of the ocean minerals. And uh, it's very interesting that the ocean minerals, when, they have, uh, when they're in their coarse um, uh, form, they can be in a bag, an open bag, or in a tote. You know, we get them in a one-ton tote or something like that. Um, and it's, it sits there, and it's just constantly absorbing moisture out of the air and dripping on the ground. It's, got, it's really unusual. It's, it must be the interaction of the minerals with the, uh, the atmosphere. But um, these ocean minerals provide trace minerals. Now, I'll, just a word of caution, if you live in Arizona or any of these arid low rainfall areas, probably your sodium levels are going to be high and you may not be able to use it. So your soil test, going back to the um, soil test, there is a sodium um, row there, a column, uh, sorry, row, where you can actually see w what, it, what your sodium levels are and you can actually say to, you know, talk to Whitmer if he's your consultant, say, how much C90 can I apply safely? And he'll tell you and you can go and apply that. And so this really enhances the health of the plants. It enhances your health when you eat them. The flavor is much, um, much better. And uh, your customers will love them, your sales will go up, and uh, it's well worth applying the C90. Uh, I won't say more, but there's, uh, Lynn Hoag sometimes does a whole hour class talking about C90. Here you can see the major nutrient uptake of tomatoes. and. You can see here that they peak around um, week eight. There's, um, in particular, you'll see the dotted line for nitrogen. It doesn't necessarily peak at week eight, but it's, it's uh, maximized at a, uh, over about uh, week five or six through to about 10, um, has a high consumption of nitrogen. The uh, potassium peaks there and so what we actually do um, is we'll fertilize the, in addition to what we put in the soil, we do a weekly or a bi-weekly fertilization through the drip system um, to supply the additional needs of the plant of nitrogen and potassium. And then by the time I get to about week 12, I stop putting it through. I could keep 
feeding it to him, but the results doesn't really justify the cost of doing it for me. And um, so I stop around that time. And, um, and the, the plants continue to produce. So that for us is usually around early to mid-August. And then from mid, early to mid-August through to about, um, like I, I mentioned before, mid-October, even into November, we're still harvesting. What we do notice is the fruit size gets smaller because the potassium influences the size of the fruit. So if you want um, you know, good sized fruit, you have to make sure you've got sufficient potassium in your soil. And um, so we feed, this is the, what the recommendations from Whitmar were for the weekly um, feeding of nitrogen and potassium through the drip system. And it's based on a thousand square feet. So whatever area that you're growing, you have to you know, adjust it accordingly, the rates. But there's a planting to first fruit set, and then there's a fruit set to first harvest, and then a first harvest through last harvest. Well, as I mentioned, we don't do to the last harvest because it's not cost effective. Um, we use a nitrogen source that comes from Growers Secret. It's actually a soybean based um, nitrogen that comes out of Europe. It's a non-GMO uh, soybean one. It's very expensive. It's, um, uh, it costs, we buy it in 50 pound bags and it probably costs about, we get it at a lower rate than, than if you're buying just a bag at a time. A bag at a time I think is about $300. We're getting it for about $200. And um, so it's expensive, but you get really good results. And so it's worth it for us on a commercial scale to be using it. And then the um, potassium sulfate, I didn't put a picture in here, but it's called, uh, sometimes called sulfate of potash and you want a soluble one. And uh, I think Diamond is the brand and um, it's a white kind of powder looking, very heavy. And um, you just mix it into a water solution and then you can use a, an injector. Um, you can use a cheap version of an injector as a Marzi. Um, you can put in line on your manifold and feed the, these through, or you can buy, we have a Dosatron for our greenhouses that um, works very well. And uh, we just, follow exactly the prescription. I'm no expert in soil science and I just follow the recommendation of Whitmar who has spent many, many uh, years studying this. So here you can see in this chart the over the period of the, well this is based on the tonnage of, of tomatoes. So for one ton of tomatoes uh, 7.2 pounds of uh, potassium is used uh, to produce that one ton of tomatoes. Nitrogen, 5.4, and you can see phosphorus, only one pound, and calcium, only four pounds, and magnesium, 1.2. So you see how important uh, potassium is uh, to your soil fertility. So I want to talk now about the benefits of using plastic mulch. When you're planting out, we, for quite a few years, we were just planting straight in the soil using a drip tape uh, for irrigation and um, we were getting good results and then um, we had to do a bit of weeding but uh, that's just all part of the job and uh, finally I got around to using plastic mulch and I will never go back well when I say never I should never say never but by choice I will never go back to um, growing them without plastic mulch when you use plastic mulch um, it's not just for weed suppression and reducing your weeding time. What actually happens is, and we're in a very dry climate uh, in California, we have five months of no rain, which is wonderful for weed control because once the moisture's out of the soil um, in between your rows, you're not weeding in between your rows. And um, the plastic mulch typically will cover an area that we use a four foot one and by the time the soil covers the edges, you've got about three foot wide or pretty close to three foot wide plastic mulch in a row and we plant directly into the plastic mulch. What happens is that when you are watering without the mulch the, the drip line will soak an area and it pretty much goes straight down and a lot of the surface water is evaporated off during the heat of the day and um, with the plastic mulch so what let me back up that the roots when they're growing will grow in the moist area they're not going to grow into the dry area of soil. When you cover that width of area, three feet or out to actually nearly four feet under plastic, 
that stops the evaporation of the water and uh, so the, even though I've got a single irrigation uh, drip tape going through there, the, the moisture wicks out to the edges of the plastic and it retains that moisture four foot wide and all that topsoil that you've got there in that zone, the roots just grow out into that zone and take up far more nutrients. So the plants just grow much more vigorously, they're healthier, lush, and they just, it's amazing. And the production is much higher using the plastic mulch. So I highly recommend if you're commercial growing, even at home, it's, it's easy to use. Um, so you have moisture retention, healthier plants and a higher yield using plastic mulch. And there's a picture you can see the plants are still pretty small and um, the plastic mulch is laid there on our terraces. Amazing. Can you hold, do you mind holding your questions to the end and, and then I'll answer them just for the sake of um, getting through it and then we can uh, answer that. So uh, plastic mulch, um, very good. So root dip, we use a root dip for transplanting and this is something that I didn't learn this from anybody. I just basically used logic and um, this works very, very well. Um, and I, when I say used logic, I, I, I believe God impressed me with this because I claim that promise just about every day when I'm growing that God gives the farmer wisdom and I ask him for wisdom and I believe that he has over and over again impressed upon me things that I haven't read about, I haven't been taught and then I'll read about it or I'll go to a class and I learn that that's the best way to do it. And so um, what we use in this root dip, we actually submerse our, um, we use a 50 count tr uh, tray for uh, growing our tomato seedlings and we'll submerse the whole um, soil and root zone into this root dip, pull it out and then as we're transplanting we put it in. So what I find most effective is slightly stress the plant before you are going to plant. So what that means is instead of doing your regular watering um, that you do on a daily or, or sometimes if you're in a hot area you might do it more than once a day, um, just leave off the last watering so that the plant is thirsty. The plant is ready for a drink. It's not wilting, it's not showing stress visibly, but it is hung, it's thirsty. And so it's ready to take a drink. And then in our uh, root dip, we use uh, soluble nitrogen, the Grower's Secret 1200. So I'm, I'm using just a Rubbermaid tote that's, um, you know, just a short one. And uh, we'll fill it up to maybe four inches of water. And I'll put in maybe a, a generous teaspoon of this um, 1200 Grower's Secret. The, uh, we use the maxi crop. Um, it's a seaweed extract that's in a soluble form. And I'll put about the same amount of that and then about the same amount of a myc mycorrhizae fungi. It's a powder form. Um, and I mix that up in the, in the water and then submerse the, the roots uh, in there. And then as we transplant them out, you're inoculating the soil with the mycorrhizae fungi. And uh, the seaweed extract is a um, rooting stimulant. It has a rooting hormone compound in there and so the, the roots will vigorously grow as a result of that being there and the nitrogen is the energy that gets you know growth going. So as a result of using this um, root dip, uh, if you've done much in the way of gardening you usually experience that when you transplant your plants out they get transplant shock and they look really sad and wilted and they sometimes can take a week before they start perking up and start growing. Using this, um, this dip, there's no, I've, I have no transplant shock. They go in the ground and they grow immediately. They just, it's amazing. So it's a very, very effective uh, way. So I use about, in a, in a, so a Rubbermaid tote, I can't tell you what the dimensions are, but roughly this long by about this wide and it has four inches. Um, of water and I put about a teaspoon of 1200, a teaspoon of, and a generous teaspoon, not a flat teaspoon, um, and a, of the seaweed extract maxi crop and a teaspoon of a powdered form of mycorrhizae fungi. And um, so what does mycorrhizae do? It attaches to the plant's roots and it extends the reach of the roots and, and increases the uptake of um, nutrients for the plant. It, uh, it 
helps the plant to deal with stress if there's not enough water. It, there, there are many benefits, so I won't go into it now, but um, it's a really beneficial microorganism that um, works symbiotically with the plant. And when you rototill your soil, you're killing what's there, if there was any. You'll find it plentiful in, this, in the forest where the soil is not disturbed. Uh, if you have wood chips on the ground and you turn them over and they're white underneath, that's mycorrhizae, that's the fungi. That's a form. There's many different forms of it. There's ecto and endo and, and yeah, I won't go into it for the sake of time. So planting depth. When you plant, I mentioned before that the, the, the uh, plants uh, have pubescent vines and you can plant them deep. So if your transplant above the soil is say eight inches high, I will plant half of that under the ground and just and then that part of the vine that is underground will, will uh, produce roots where they're in contact with the soil. So tomato support, when you've planted them and you want to give them support, a very efficient way of uh, supporting them and cost effective is what's referred to as stake and weave. And I found as I looked online for some pictures to illustrate it, that it's, it may have uh, originated in Florida and so some of them refer to it as a Florida weave. And so effectively what it is is a wooden stake. The ones we're using are, a, um, we've used two inch by two inch wooden stakes with, you know, sharpened on the end. Um, for a determinate plant, you probably only want about maybe four foot or five foot high stakes. You can use T-posts if you're in a small scale and you can afford them or you've got them already. Um, but, um, or you, if you're going to use them for indeterminates, you probably want seven or eight foot high ones because you're going to drive them in the ground at least 12 inches, maybe more, and those indeterminates are going to grow up to six foot or more. In fact, our ones grew up to the top and then they grew so tall, they, they went some of them all the way back down to the ground <laughs> by the end of the season. But, um, so you, you put these in, you can put them in for the stakes in between every plant, every second or every third. We do it every third, it seems to be strong. The stakes seem to work well. And sometimes with the T-posts, because they are stronger than wood, um, I've put them in on every fourth plant and that works. And then you can see the topical view there on the lower um, illustration that you tie a string around and then go one side of the plant and you do the same on the other side and so you're basically encapsulating the plant in between strings and we start off at about eight inches above the ground and then another eight inches and just keep going at that spacing as the plants continue to grow and there's sufficient um, head. You want to do it before the plant's going to fall over and um, I wish I could demonstrate uh, how you do it. You could do it with your hand. We first started doing it like that and then Alan came and visited and said, oh, there's a better way of doing it and he showed us with a little piece of um, plastic PVC pipe that you thread the string through, maybe a half inch or could do it with three quarter inch pipe and so you hold the end of it. You don't have to bend down so far and you can go around and, it, and kind of put a little bit of leverage on it. You use your left hand to keep tension on it and you go around and you can do it without having to bend down and we have, you know, um, thousands of feet of them so it saves your back bending down and then when it gets up high it's easy to reach up. Um, I don't, I wish I had a video of it and could show you but here you can see the plants are about a third of the way to their uh, full height. Um, they've just been weaved between the strings. Let's see there's, there's one close up you can see the strings. You can see the, uh, vi the vines of the plant in between the strings and um, we do actually prune or try to if we have enough time. Um, the, the lower side shoots because the, the, the growing habit of the plant, you've got leaves and then in between the leaf and the main stem, there comes out a side shoot and um, so the plant keeps bushing out. So the lower ones, if you don't break those off, you get a lot of uh, branches wanting to grow out on the ground and you're going to step on them and they're going to be in the way. And, uh, once the vines are growing and fill up between the, the strings, it's a bit hard and you can damage your fruit by trying to tuck them back in. So the lower ones, you know, maybe up to 12 inches high, um, it's beneficial to prune the side shoots and so that when they do start uh, spreading out, it's where they're between the strings and it's easier to contain them. Um, 
So let's talk about flower pollination. This is an important one because the flowers, sometimes you can have issue with uh, getting fruit set. And we found that especially when we start in the green, uh, under the um, plastic, uh, getting fruit set, sometimes you're waiting and waiting and it's not happening. And there's reasons for that. So the flowers of a tomato plant are pollinated by bumblebees or wild bees, not honeybees. And the reason for that is that um, it takes a certain vibration um, inside the flower when the bee comes in, a certain frequency that the honeybees don't know how to do. And so the bumblebees and wild bees know how to do it, and then they can get their nectar out of the flower. And um, so if, there's, if they're not around, then um, you're not going to have pollination. In a commercial greenhouse, they will actually put a bumblebee nest. You can buy them for commercial purposes. They place them in the greenhouse, and the bumblebees fly around doing their job of pollination. Pollination um, happens within a given temperature range, and I'll show you uh, I'll, I'll share some more information about that. So when we're starting early in the, in the um, high tunnel, there can be a lot of flowers on the plants and nothing's happening and they'll actually, uh, the fruit, I mean, not the fruit, but the flowers, you'll start seeing them wilting and, and dying and there's no fruit set and you're thinking, why? Well, you can actually artificially um, pollinate by tapping them or even going through with a leaf blower and blowing them and it, and it vibrates them and it gets a bit of um, pollination. But it's not the best way. If you do do that, you actually um, can pollinate immature ones that are not quite ready. And what I found is you actually get a whole bunch of really tiny little fruits and they don't, they don't grow to full size because they were pollinated too young. Um, so, but the, the temperature actually um, has to be above 55 for them to pollinate. So let me read this. Tomato plants drop their flowers under extreme temperature regimes, such as high daytime temperatures above 85 degrees, high nighttime temperatures above 70 uh, degrees, or low nighttime temperatures below 55. Optimal growing conditions for tomatoes are daytime temperatures between 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 85 degrees Fahrenheit. While tomato plants can tolerate more extreme temperatures for short periods, several days or nights with temperatures outside the optimal range will cause the plant to abort flowers and fruit and focus on survival. Temperatures over 140 degrees, uh, sorry, 104 degrees for only four hours can cause the flower to abort if nighttime temperatures fall below 55 or rise above 70, or if daytime temperatures rise above 85, the pollen becomes tacky and non-viable, preventing pollination from occurring and causing the blossom to dry and drop. So temperature is really, really vital. Some other influences can be excessive nitrogen, can cause your flowers to become non-viable and, and to drop, and uh, not enough can also be an issue. That's why following the, the soil recommendations are so vital. We don't have to worry about it. If, it. I can't emphasize it enough. If you put what's needed for the plant in the soil and, and look after that, you don't have to become an expert in all these different conditions that come about. People ask me questions about this disease and, and all that. I don't know anything about it because the soil makes healthy plants when you follow the right recommendations and do um, you know, supply what, what is needed. So this is the process of the uh, flower. You have the flower development, the flower opens, and when it's fully open and you see the, uh, the, the uh, petals, or I guess they're petals, open like that, um, then they're ready to pollinate and then you get fruit set and, that, and you'll see a little wee little ball, green ball in the, um, uh, right there in the cradle of the, the calyx and then um, the tomato starts growing until maturity. Now, blossom end rot is very common and we unfortunately have had our fair share of uh, blossom end rot um, and it's very disheartening to lose a lot of valuable uh, tomatoes to blossom end rot and it's very preventable. The common word out there is that it's a calcium deficiency, which it is, 
is caused by a calcium deficiency at the, at the time of fruit set, when the flower is just forming its first little fruit. But it's not because that necessarily that there's not calcium in the soil. What it is actually caused from is not sufficient water. Now tomatoes are a very hardy plant and they don't show stress like um, that they're needing water until they're just, and when they start wilting and they're very seriously dehydrated. And, um, but they can be deficient in water and look very healthy and happy and, and you would never guess. And you can even dig around in the surface of the water, uh, of the soil, and it's very moist and you can be do a, doing a daily watering. We were watering every day and thinking we're giving them all they need and in, the, in the heat of the summer or even in the early summer and we were still getting blossom end rot. So what I learned, and this came from our UC Davis um, uh, Cooperative Extension Office uh, advisor, was that tomatoes need a deep watering, a deep watering. Why is that? The roots of tomatoes can go down eight feet if the soil allows them. And so they have a very um, deep root uh, zone. In the um, summertime, as the soil dries out, uh, you might be watering the surface, but deep down it's dry. It's really dry and the plant is, is not taking up the calcium because the roots can't take it up without moisture. So what do we do? Um, there's an instrument called a tensiometer and this is a, a device for measuring the amount of moisture in the soil via the tension that is created through the roots drawing the moisture and then as the soil dries out there's a, uh, there's a ceramic tip on the end of this instrument and it starts, uh, the moisture starts going through that ceramic as the soil dries out and as the roots are uh, sucking it up and it creates a vacuum in that gauge and then the needle goes up and you can actually measure it and you know when to turn the water on and you know when uh, to turn it off. And there is an electronic version of it, it's more expensive. Um, that you can put these little probes in the ground, one deeper than the other. Um, here's a, a picture of the gauge of the vacuum gauge and depending on the soil type, uh, when you would turn the uh, water on. What, we have a clay soil, so when the gauge gets up to 50, we turn water on and when it drops down to zero, we turn it off because the, water is, uh, the soil is saturated. It is recommended that you use two. You use a shallow one and a deep one. And so the, the shallow one, when the shallow one starts showing that it's getting up to 50 and, and the moisture is getting low, so that might be at, at the level of six inches under the soil, then we'll turn the water on. The deep one might show that it's still at 30 and it's still got moisture, but we won't turn the water off until that one shows zero and, um, and it's saturated at that depth of um, 18 inches can work or you can even go, they recommend going to a three foot one. Um, so these instruments have really turned around our problem with both blossom end rot and cracking. Because cracking is also caused from um, you have insufficient water and then too much water. And the, 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 the fruit has a burst of growth when it gets more water and then it cracks because the skin can't uh, grow and stretch as fast as the inside is growing. So these are, if you're growing commercially, these will pay for themselves over and over and over again in, in one season. Um, they, they're expensive. I think the, um, the mechanical one is about uh, starting around $80 plus the shipping to get it. The electronic one with a couple of the electronic probes, it's about, uh, I think, 230 or roughly around two, two plus shipping. So um, they're very, very effective and highly recommended. You can use them on any crops. You can use them in your orchard. They, they are um, an excellent tool to be using. So, uh, well, what time do we finish? Is it 11.45? I think it is. Uh, so. I'm not going to get into the um, pest side of things so much, um, but one of the probably most common pests that you will come across is the, uh, it's known as the tomato hornworm. Um, it's actually the sphinx moth uh, caterpillar. And so they get onto your plant and they'll start eating leaves 
and they'll eat into your fruit, the green fruit, and you'll see the evidence of where they've been because you'll see their poop and little, uh, uh, little black uh, deposits on the leaves that it's dropped down onto. And sometimes they can do a lot of damage. Um, we typically don't have a whole lot of them, but when we find them, we put them on the ground and you squash them. They're a little bit hard to squash and they're a bit yucky to squash, but um, that's one effective way. The girls don't like doing it because they're so cute, but um, anyway, <laughs> you need to do it. <laughs> Um, if you have a real serious issue, you might want to spray a BT or a Spinosad um, spray. So there's a picture of the uh, damage that they do, and you can see the little black droppings on the leaves there. There's the life cycle of the sphinx moth, and uh, so you might find them at the pupa stage. You might find a few of them lying around in your garden. If you do, smash them um, and prevent the moth from hatching and um, producing its egg and then producing a, uh, a larva and, and a caterpillar that's going to basically go through and do the damage. So harvesting and storage. Uh, depending on the type that you're growing, uh, different ways of harvesting. Um, if you are growing um, cherry tomatoes, uh, we grew a lot of them for the last couple of years. We use a uh, pouch bag it's uh, not an orchard bag. The orchard bags are bigger and hold a higher volume. It's actually one that we get from uh, Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. It's called a, I think it's a roux bag or something like that. It's got a picture of a kangaroo and it's a pouch that sits, you know, right here. And you can pick with two hands that are free and straight into the um, bag. Um, when we're picking and we're selling, we, we leave the calyx on, the fruit, if it stays on there. It's a hassle to try to break the calyx off. Some varieties, they break off easily and some uh, they don't. And if you do try um, on the ones that don't, you usually cause a, a splitting and they, um, they damage and go rotten quickly. So um, one of those bags works really well for uh, cherry tomatoes and romas and the reason why with the romas with the romas um, you they typically will the, the calyx will break right off when you're picking them you just give them a little twist and you can pile them in and they don't get damaged going into a bag piling up and then you can gently drop them into whatever um, we use these yellow plastic harvest um, bins or, or uh, boxes or whatever you call them and um, you can just gently dump them in there and you can harvest them very efficiently. If you're uh, harvesting slicer tomatoes or heirloom, especially have a thin skin, you've got to be really gentle and really careful. Um, the calyx has a little knuckle above it and you can grab it and with your thumb on that calyx, give it a twist and typically, not always, they, that will break and snap very easily right at that knuckle. Um, some varieties don't let go very easy, so you want to have a, some snips and just go and snip them. And then you need to have your we just put them straight into the boxes that we're going to sell them um, uh, with and then just uh, place them in there and, st and stack them single layer. And the reason why you want to do single layer is if you start putting a, a second layer on there, the, the stem of the calyx will puncture the skin of the next layer and then it's no longer um, able to be sold uh, as a first. It'll be a second then because it goes rotten where the skin has been pierced and your stores or wherever you're selling them they won't be happy. Um, if you're storing you, the, the tomatoes the ideal temperature is around 55 degrees and they will store for a long time. We have a refrigerated shipping container and um, we store a lot of things in there and because tomatoes like 55 and our cucumbers would prefer to be down near 40 or even lower than 40 um, then I will compromise halfway between and it will store them both and it'll be a little bit colder than the tomatoes. The problem with refrigerating tomatoes is that they lose their flavor um, when they're cold and so they're better to be outside. But if you need to hold them for a day or two before you deliver them or sell them, um, you need to keep them at a cool temperature to um, uh, keep them fresh. You can, if you have a root cellar, you can put them in a root cellar because under the, under the ground it stays pretty much 55 degrees year round. Uh, just that's the natural temperature deeper down. Uh, packaging, this is the last slide that I have. Um, 
I have found with um, tomatoes, the, we, we grow a lot of the slicer, which is typically a three inch um, diameter um, tomato. And um, they will take maybe slightly smaller down to maybe a two and a half, but they like them to be around the three inch size. Um, and then the, the plants often will produce smaller ones than that. And so I have not been able to successfully sell them in bulk to any retail outlet. They don't want the small ones. The customers just screw their nose up and won't, won't buy them. But if you put them in a nice little one pound clamshell, and we, we call them cocktail tomatoes, um, they look pretty and, and nice and they sell really well. So we were able to get rid of the ones that for a year or so, we didn't know what to do with. We were giving them away, we couldn't sell them. Um, but packaging makes a huge difference. I don't like to use plastic, but I don't want to throw them away. So that's one way. And then hopefully your customers are responsible in recycling and, and not putting them into a landfill. Okay, that is it and our, our uh, time is over. And I will have a word of prayer, but I'll stay by if you want to ask any questions. But let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, giving us this time to just discuss an overview of how to grow tomatoes. Um, thank you for the experience that you've given me. I don't know all the different uh, things that everybody needs to know for their growing conditions, but I pray that you will teach each one through the wisdom that you've promised to give and that each year they will get better and better and know their conditions and, and be successful and uh, have a lot of happiness that comes from, from this. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.